Glowing Older is a coaching firm that supports people to create plans for aging well. Through facilitating conversation, presenting options, and identifying resources, Glowing Older provides curated, personalized service to help our clients discover what's possible for the third act of life. This is our podcast. Hello and welcome to the Glowing Older podcast, where we interview experts on innovation in the business of aging well. I'm your host, Nancy Griffin, and I'm so pleased to be here today with Scott Townsley, the Senior Advisor at Trilogy Consulting. Welcome to the program, Scott. Thanks, Nancy. It's it's good to be part of Glowing Older. Well, thank you. Um, before we dig into all that you're doing today, tell us about your background in senior living and education and operations and all that. I frequently refer to myself as a senior living or long-term care mutt in the sense that I've done a variety of things over the years. And as it turned out, turns out, um, I'd say with the exception of five years when I was a uh, mob lawyer, that's a topic for another day, perhaps. <laughs> um, uh, I've been involved in, in the field um, and starting at the age of, of um, 15. And uh, won't bore you with all the details, but I got my start working in the kitchen of a Presbyterian nursing home, uh, being a dishwasher. And then residents had the misfortune of me being promoted to cook. <laughs> um, <laughs> not really not an exaggeration, but uh, I'll tell you, some of my favorite um, memories in the field come from from those seven years. And it really shaped the rest of my career, including going back to that organization about five years after I left and practiced law to become their general counsel, um, their first human resource officer, and um, in charge of special projects. And it was, um, what I developed was a passion for the special projects. We did some um, interesting things back in the the 1980s and and, um, found my way into consulting beginning in 1985 and have spent the rest of my career doing that from um, strategy, to market analysis, to executive search, project development, marketing, sales, um, and over the years had a firm by the name of Third Age, where we had a great team of people that built it into one of the larger freestanding consulting firms just focused on aging services or senior living. Sold that to Clifton Larson Allen in 2010 and became the uh, principal in charge of the National Senior Living Consulting Practice. And then as as my time as an equity principal was was ending, I figured that I wasn't quite done yet. And I started uh, Trilogy Consulting on, on January 1st of, of 2017. Um, and um, that's mostly it. I, I, I guess there's a, a 10 year period from 2000, uh, 2010 to 2021 um, where I've taught strategy um, innovation and entrepreneurship, the capstone course, and several other courses at the Erickson School, the graduate program in particular. Um, And then um, spent some time with um, several uh, folks on the faculty and the dean, uh, creating a 501c3 organization to take over the sponsorship of the Greenhouse Project uh, back in 2016. And we did that for about five years as we work to stabilize the organization. And uh, perhaps we can talk more about Greenhouse Project later. But- I love that. And you know, what's so great about you is you're such an insider, but you're also 
a disruptor, which we love here at Glowing Older. <laughs> um, after you and I connected, I, I spent some time um, listening to the podcast and seeing what you're doing. And um, boy, you're, you're the right place at the right time and you're the right person and, and disrupting um, aging in a way is exactly, I think, what we all should be about for, for several reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, for sure. So tell me specifically about Trilogy. I, I know you um, are now as senior advisor and you have another principal. So just give me some background, some of the projects and services. Yeah, it, it, and I'm ha happy to do that. I, um, I, was, I was going back to the website just recently and um, this is probably the best description that, that that we could put together. It's a it's a boutique firm specializing in strategy, vision, and innovation within the senior living field, um, but also those involved in the longevity economy. Um, and it's advisory, it's collaboration um, with um, a, a large number of, of organizations, from quite frankly the very smallest to among the largest um, in the country. And it's affiliations and mergers and divestitures. It's um, a lot of strategic planning or strategy. Uh, it's working with boards of directors, particularly in the not-for-profit arena on, on governance, dysfunction, and sometimes um, just enhancing the governance and decision-making uh, with, within organizations. Diane Burfeind is, is now the uh, managing principal. And I have the luxury of of becoming the senior advisor, which means I can just kind of goof off and offer my opinion. <laughs> on it. Not, not exactly. <laughs> um, I, I continue to do a, an occasional assignment as Diane carries the, the heaviest load. And, and I'll also support her on a variety of different assignments that, that, that may require some of the expertise or experience that I have. Diane's um, was the senior VP of strategy and innovation at one of the largest not-for-profit senior living uh, organizations in the country. She, one conversation, she said, I think I've done about all there is to do um, at a management and leadership level within the field, and, and she truly has. So it's, it's been a really uh, great coming together, and I enjoy working with her. And I love your story about how when you started Trilogy, you didn't really care if you had projects or not, <laughs> but it exploded and it's um, it's it's so holistic, which is great. And I'm sure people love that depth of experience along with the innovation. So Scott, talk to me about the word innovation. We've had this conversation before, but are, are you really seeing innovation in senior living? No. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And that's my answer. No, <laughs> um, I, you know, it, it, I, it's disappointing um, because the, the word is so widely used, as, as you know, um, but it, but in my experience, so rarely practiced. And, and when it's practiced, it tends to be sort of incremental innovation as as opposed to really significant innovation. And, and you know, I, there's reasons for that, um, that 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 we can talk about. But I was I was thinking um, I, for for a couple of years, or maybe it was just a couple of sessions, as I was doing presentations in front of different audiences, you know, leading age, American Healthcare Association, and so forth, I would ask the question, hey, audience, in the last 20 or 30 years, what's the most significant innovation that you've seen in the field? And if there were um, people who were old enough in the audience, um, they generally would would say, well, isn't it Kendall's untie the elderly? And I said, yeah, that's, that, that was a really significant and important innovation. But 
That was 1989. So that's, you know, a little bit outside of our, our range. And then, and then folks would say, well, how about greenhouse project in small houses? And I said, boy, you nailed it. You nailed it. What else? And then there'd be crickets. And um, honestly, this happened at, at least twice. It, it might have been three times. I'd, I'd press a little bit. You know, silence is, the, is, is, is uncomfortable. I'd press and, and, uh, and someone would say, person-centered care. And I have this snarky streak, which I'm going to try to hide in our session. I have this snarky streak, and, and, and I remember saying on more than one occasion, Oh, so let me see if I have this right. Give people what they want when they want it. And in our field, we'll call that innovation. We're in trouble. That's true. Um, and so I, I, I stopped um, asking that. It just if, if I have a couple of other seconds on, on innovation, because it, it's such, I mean, it's, it, it sounds like a cliche um, or maybe trite to say innovation is so critical. But it really is because, you know, we're facing um, an avalanche of aging consumers that, that you know, as a society, we're not prepared for and, and structurally we're not prepared for it. Um, Rita McGrath, who's a professor at Columbia, um, talks about and she has a couple of books. One is The End of Competitive Advantage, but she talks about the importance of having an innovation infrastructure. And, and so it's, you know, it's more than saying, hey, we're going to be an innovative organization and then hoping that maybe once in a while somebody will come up with a, a good idea. It's, it's actually really investing the time, making sure everyone's on the same page. Um, and it's and it's not easy work. Um, and um, one of the um, one of the observations that's been made by a number of people is that disruptive innovation when they both you know, creation, creation and destruction um, that revolutionizes a sector, that it, it rarely comes from inside. It, it mostly comes from outside. And I think that's one of the big risks um, that we have. Just a, a, a real quick example. When I was teaching, um, one of the questions I, I would ask, it was in this really assignment, I would say to the students, these are grad students, I'd say, I, I want you to design um, a bedless nursing home. And I'm going to give you 10 minutes to do it. So work in groups and, and then come back. And what I observed was that the people who were inside the field, they were the administrators, the executive directors, sometimes we had CEOs, it would struggle with the assignment. And it, and it was because they knew too much. You know, they, they, they felt the restrictions uh, and the constraints. The people who were there to get a graduate degree from outside of the field, whether it's transportation, consumer products, uh, pharmaceuticals, what, whatever the case may be, they would fly into it and they would fly out um, with a solution. It may be entirely wrong um, or, you know, not possible, but they didn't hesitate to belly up and, and say a bedless nursing home would involve this, this and this. Well, the last time, and this is when I stopped um, doing it, uh, one of the people from inside of the field um, she looked up from her group and she said, now, now, Scott, um, would it, would a bedless nursing home be like a room, a nursing home room that didn't have a bed in it? <laughs> no, that's not kind of what we're going for here. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I kind of stopped asking you, but, but sometimes I, I fear, you know, when it comes to innovation, we're, 
we, we find ourselves asking that question. We, we want to innovate, but does that mean a a room without a bed? Is that what we're talking about? No, it's it's bigger and more substantial, and the opportunity um, is frankly staring us in, in the face. Well, you've talked a lot about um, just the the lack of uh, forward movement and this kind of stagnation in the industry, and and then I I've also mentioned to you that. I find the industry extremely siloed, you know, coming from spa and wellness and us yeah. all working together. So talk to me about some of the changes you've seen over the decades and, and some of the things you'd like to see done differently. Great question. Wow. So standing back 50 years, I, I, I don't think we have enough time for me to go decade by decade, nor would it be that particularly interesting because what, what I've kind of seen is there have been substantial and significant changes. I'll talk about that in a second. And then... You know, in, my, in my mind, I'm drawing a line down the middle of a, of a theoretical page and, and saying, and yet, there's all of the things that, that haven't changed and, and some of the things that haven't changed for the better, but most of them, um, just because of intransience or an embracing of the status quo without calling it that. But let, let's talk about the changes first, because that's that's a little bit more fun. Um, in, the, in, the, uh, in the late 60s, when when I entered the field and in the 70s when I was working at that nursing home and curious kid paying attention to things, um, it was a it was a it was a, a really um, fascinating time. And I, and I saw it in the little nursing home that we had there because um, Medicare and Medicaid had come into being in, in 1965. And, and so there were new regs. There were there was funding that was available. And the transformation of the field from the old folks home to what was then the modern nursing home um, was happening all over the place. The, the other thing that's sort of interesting about that, and I and I, I don't remember the exact number, but I used to use a slide that would show kind of the um, a tip, you know, typical old folks home, um, 20 beds, 15, whatever the case may be. And it's something in the neighborhood of 10,000 of those old folks homes went out of business in the 1970s, which is um, essentially two thirds of the number of, of actual nursing homes that today exist in the United States. I, I, I think that's interesting because, you know, if, if somebody says, you know, the, the regulations are so intense, the, you know, the structure is so detailed, the reimbursement is so defined, there'll never be a disruption. Yeah, well, go back to the 60s and 70s, and, and and you can see the disruption that happened. All, quite frankly, all for the better, at least most for the better. Um, assisted living was a was a huge um, change in the 1980s. Um, certainly, and certainly it continues. And um, I can remember um, in the would have been the, the later 1980s going to a building in central Pennsylvania and the owner um, being very concerned because they were getting cited by the state for serving people in what was then licensed as personal care, which in Pennsylvania would, would be the equivalent of assisted living. They were serving uh, folks with Alzheimer's and dementia, and he was getting cited for this, uh, by the state for uh, caring for people who they felt didn't belong there. Um, and yet, probably three or four years later, without any change to the regulation, um, that's exactly where um, in Pennsylvania, that's you know, sort of my home state in a way, though I, I don't live there now. That's exactly where uh, folks with dementia and, and memory care issues were being served, and appropriately so, because they didn't belong uh, in nursing homes. And so 
you know, I think about that change that happened um, really because of a consumer push and some creativity um, by owners and sponsors. Um, but it, it, it just proves the point that you don't always need regulations and reimbursement to change in order to see significant movement um, that happens. Um, and then today, um, you know, I, I don't think we've figured out yet um, what the impact of COVID. You know, first of all, I, I don't think we figured out what it has been, and I and I don't think um, we figured out what it will be. But I'm reminded of um, a Dion Warwick song showing you uh, my age, which I'm I'm quite proud of, um, where where she sings, "A fool will lose tomorrow, reaching back for yesterday." And that's that's one of the concerns that I have is that when I when I look at you know here's an update from this group and here's what's happening with occupancy, we're, we're kind of looking back and say, well, when will we get back to normal? Well, normal wasn't so great, um, you know, pre-COVID, and getting back there is not where we need to to go as a, a field. And just one last point, and I'm sorry for going on about this, but the change is it's so critical as as you know in, in your efforts to to drive train change is. The things that haven't changed, um, and I, you know, I can make a list of those, but I think it's it's largely because of, you know, I, I, I refer to it as the gravitational pull of the status quo, it, and it's sort of an invisible force, just like, you know, when we when we sent um, the first rockets out of um, out of our uh, the orbit of the Earth um, and and sent them toward the moon and ultimately to the moon. What was critical was um, NASA had to find enough boost, had to find enough of an invisible force to move beyond um, the uh, the Earth's gravity. And um, I think the field is is there. We you know finding the invisible boost, and it doesn't come easy. And so that's not to say that people providers aren't being innovative. You know, said it not on a very significant scale. Um, but we're fighting. Um, we're fighting mindset. We're we're fighting what we perceive to be, you know, what's required by the government. Uh, we you know we try to innovate sometimes in in the area of payment. Um, but what we don't do is to step back and and look at the overall picture of of the structure that's been put in place. Quite frankly, some of which has its roots in civil war um, medical tents. Um, and, and maybe we're satisfied to say, look, there's more options today in 2023 than there would have been in 1973, and that would be true. But I, I think we've really got to disconnect between what the consumer is looking for and where where we need to go as a sector. I just recently read a study on um, the difference in perceptions. It was by Age of Majority and ICAA. I'm not sure if you, you saw that study, but it was all about how the perceptions of spa professional, I mean, I'm sorry, of spa, yeah. that's funny, of senior living professionals uh, and what they think of their communities and what the the general public thinks of their senior living community or residents is completely different. Like they, they, they just are really kind of, I mean, they use the word delusional, <laughs> I think, yeah. um, <laughs> in the study. So, I mean, do you think it's possible uh, you, for some of these to retrofit or or do you think it's just going to take a a cataclysmic abysmal failure and have to come out of the ashes like the phoenix and be reborn you know i i i downloaded the study um and and read it and it, it was i was sort of sitting here at my desk um cheering him cheering them on 
um, because we, we've done um, similar consumer research, but it's always been for clients. And so, um, you know, no, nobody wants to publish their research when it's, you know, it's, it's their competitive advantage. So I emailed, um, I, I, in fact, I got a, I got a um, response saying, hey, you, you downloaded this. Uh, can we be of help? And I, and I, and I emailed to compliment them on, on really putting the, uh, an important uh, word out there that, you know, sort of the, the patriarchal and matriarchal perspective we have um, is the wrong way to look at what folks my age, quite frankly, um, are, are looking for and, and, and wanting and, and needing. Um, to, to answer your specific question, and, and so I, I would commend that, um, and it's and it's on your website. You, you you've got that as um, as one of the blog posts. Um, I, I would commend people to to go there and, and not only read the study, soak it in, and don't deny it. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's seniortrade.com. Appreciate that. Okay. Yep. Seniortrade.com. Yeah. yeah. Um, to your question, specific question about um, what's it what's it going to take? Um, it's it's going to take something that's um, maybe not cataclysmic, but it's going to take a very significant um, investment because there are still campuses and buildings out there that were that were created in the '70s and the '80s. And um, I, I used to do some slides that that showed here's how people were living in the 1960s and '70s. That's why when they looked at a retirement community moving to a studio or a place that didn't have a washer and dryer, kind of made perfect sense. But you know, those are those are decades past. So so what's it going to take? Well, it's going to take um, really an attack on all fronts. So it's it's investing in the common areas, um, and as the study points out, giving people what they want, not what you think they ought to want. Um, it's it's improving the living units, and it's not just granite countertops. It's it's more space, um, a different you know a, a different type of um, of floor plan. Um, and it's it's changing the the, the pricing plans. Um, I mean, you know, the fastest growing um, element of senior living right now is the is the rental retirement, sometimes uh, called active adult. But you know, going like wildfire. That's just because they got the pricing right and, and they got the design right. And then you got to do the you know the the basics. Like you actually have to improve the hallways. And, and uh, I had a I had a client once tell me after they walked me down and showed me their cool new living units and they showed me what they did in the in the dining. Uh, room the restaurant and and then I was walking down the hallway and said this looks like hell. Oh Scott, this eight hundred thousand dollars a hallway and, and and I said to him and I said to others, you know, um, if you build a half a bridge and you pay fifty million dollars for that half a bridge, it's worth zero. Um, you you got to build the whole bridge, so you you've got to tack, as I said, on on all fronts. Um, the for profits have it exactly right. Um, sell. Uh, before the occupancy is lost and move on um, to the next uh, generation of option. It's the not-for-profits who are struggling right now and are going to continue to struggle because they've got this weird, and, and, I, and I've done a lot of work in the not-for-profit sector. I serve on not-for-profit boards. We've got this weird sort of predilection to hold on to buildings that are um, that are unmarketable. Um, so um, there will continue to be failures, as as there are now. I mean, the, the number of not-for-profit nursing homes being sold is is really a failure of imagination, a failure to understand what the consumer was looking for. Um, and the for-profits are are getting it um, almost exactly right, if if not exactly right, because they're listening to the consumer, which which is so fundamentally it it's so often missed. 
Interesting. That's interesting because I, you know, that the, with other interviews um, over the seasons, it's been like, well, nonprofit versus profit, which one's more innovative, which one, you know, has it. And, and you're, you're definitely saying that right now you're seeing the profit sector as, as doing um, more, more innovation and, and kind of a better job. I told Larry Menix, who was the CEO of Leading Age, I was supposed to introduce him at a conference. And so we're, we're backstage and I told him of my concern about that, you know, that very topic. And, you know, he's he's got a lovable Southern accent. I, would, I won't do it justice, but I'll give it a shot. And he said to me, oh, Scott, y'all not worry about that. The, the nonprofit, nonprofits innovate and the for-profits take it to scale. And I thought about that and went, you think that's okay? <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. What about the um, the trend towards senior living as a service and taking um, the best of what senior living has to offer when it comes to engagement, socialization, those sort of things, and bringing that out to communities and homes? When you, um, and uh, to a degree in the study we're talking about, this is reflected in data, but we've, we've seen in consumer research that, that we've done through a, a firm by the name of Custom Strategic Research out of, out of DC. Um, what you see is that the, that the percentage of people who are interested in a, a campus-based senior living option is really very low. And the percentage of people who are interested um, in a service that would enable them to age better, um, while still low, um, for reasons we could talk about, while still low, is exponentially higher. So the opportunity is there and sometimes I hear people saying, well, it's more, it's, it's more expensive to serve people in their home. That, that was a raging debate in the 80s. Uh, let's, let's, let's give over to the consumer and say, if they want to live at home, let's provide them the ability and the means to do so. But there's challenges with it. Um, and and, you know, there's, and there's, been, there's been some innovation there. I, I don't think we've, we've yet seen the, the innovation potential, um, which to me, in a lot of ways, um, is um, enveloped in in how fast technology can enhance the services um, that we're able to deliver remotely because that's what's going to allow us to tackle the other uh, you know one of the biggest challenges which is the the ability to staff that david bayada who's the ceo of the largest not-for-profit um, home care and home health care uh, age uh, organization in the country said at a, a session that i was doing with them these are the 50% of their calls they can't respond to because they don't have the people. So the demand is there. We just don't have the resources. And then we've got to look very seriously um, at how we fund those services at home. And, you know, the, the dominant recipient of funding has has been the nursing homes. Um, and there's there's reasons for that, but they're, they're pretty outdated reasons. So I'm I'm optimistic that we'll be able to serve people in in the locations that they're looking for, but we're gonna we're gonna have to make some changes to do it. Yeah, I mean, it it gets back to some of those other reasons that you were saying is that, that it's a different it's in mentality. Like if you're a hotel, your heads on beds. If you're senior living, your number of units, whatever your metrics are, you're just not thinking in those terms. So it could be a while, Scott. But what gets you most excited these days? Um, 
it's the potential um, that's there. And, and you know, then, then immediately, if, I, I don't know if it's the legal training, sort of the analytical dimension, there's there's a depressing part. It's like, oh, there's this great potential. Oh, boy, but are we going to be able to capture it or are we going to find ourselves in, in crisis? Um, and I, and I'm, I'm reminded of um, something that, that Google, um, would now, now called Alphabet, launched in 2013, which is, which was called Calico. And you can, and you can go to their website, just Google Calico Labs uh, or Google Calico Labs.com. Um, but they said they were going to solve death, <laughs> um, which some of our religious clients found objectionable. But what, what, what I found exciting about that, and, and that's where I think we are, is if we enable people to think beyond the bounds and the constraints of the, of the daily stuff that we have to deal with, um, we'll find the way to meet those opportunities and to profit from them, um, profit from, you know, from service perspective, if you're not for profit, profit um, from a dollar perspective. I just real quick mention doing a session at the Greenhouse Project Pioneer Network Conference in Pittsburgh on July 23rd to the 26th. And I think the presentation's on the 24th. Um, don't hold me to that. The, the title is When Dogs Get Wings. Um, it's, it's, it's akin to when pigs fly. And we could probably think of a lot of other sayings where my intent is to sort of hypnotize the participants who will be C-suite um, leaders, tech people, um, sprinkling of architects, and, and attempt to imagine um, a future that captures those opportunities that are out there. Well, thank you for being a disruptor and for staying in the game for another decade or so, Scott. We need you. Thanks. I uh, it's it's a uh, I found my calling early on. I'm grateful for that. Thanks for being with us. You've been listening to the Glowing Older Podcast. 